Welcome to Old Books of Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond. We are on week seven of the Summer Old Book Club, looking at chapters seven through nine of volume two of Jane Austen's Persuasion. And I'm really, really excited to welcome my good friend, Goodwin Bell, on the show. Hi, Goodwin. Hi. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Grace. I'm excited to be here. I'm super excited you're here, and I can't wait to talk persuasion with you. So, Goodwin Bell, who you see and hear here, is a Presbyterian pastor, the mother of three, a farmer with her husband, Jack, and a dear, dear friend to me over the years. Goody and Jack live outside of Durham, North Carolina, on Bell Farm, and if you are in the market in NC for some delicious eggs and meat, you should definitely Google them right away. Goody and I met through Jack because Jack's also a medievalist and we were in the same program at Duke. Goody grew up in Memphis. She went to college in Richmond and eventually they settled in North Carolina. She has her master's in divinity from Duke and we have always connected through conversation, ideas, and books, um, among other things, which made inviting her to come and chat persuasion a really natural fit. Goody is a gifted, intelligent, and compassionate teacher and speaker. Her sermons are truly excellent. And you can also listen to those if you Google her as well. Um, her twin vocations as pastor and mother intersect painfully and wonderfully and inflect her insights into people, faith, and Jesus. And I'm so thankful for her and that she's my friend. So welcome, Giddy. Thanks, Grace. Uh, I wish we could be flapping on the old jean couches and doing this. <laughs> so <laughs> in, this in uh, it's so true. And so in Durham, um, Scott and I had these absolutely awful jean couches that were already like 20 years old. Um, and they slowly lost more and more shape, but a lot of good conversation was had on them. So there were a good conversations that happen on the jean couches with piles of laundry around us. <laughs> yes, Goody has helped me fold way too many piles of laundry to count because um, that's what you do when you are both a mom and a pastor is you are really faithful about stepping into people's messy laundry lives. So sometimes you can call that work and that's a gift. <laughs> <laughs> it is a gift to everybody. It's a gift to me. But before we get to persuasion, I have to ask you three questions that I ask everybody who comes as a guest on this podcast. Number one, who or what is your favorite author or book from more than 50 years ago? I, uh, I struggle to pick favorites, but I will say ones I think of often with great delight, uh, when is the Princess and the Goblin by George MacDonald? Good choice. Uh, someone gave that to my oldest daughter, Hazel, for her baptism, and we've read it several times together as a family. Uh, so I love thinking about that. And I and Jessica recommended a Goblin book by Christina Rossetti. So I'm curious. That's my next. Oh read. yes, it is. Um, you're you're going to really like yeah. it. It's a poem, and it's excellent. Yes. Well, thanks, Jessica. Um, and it was so fun to hear your grandma mention Tolstoy because my other one would be Anna Karenina. I read it while I was pregnant with Lewis 
it's such a mood book. I mean, there's so many things that happen in it, but uh, yeah, I think of the sort of the city life and country life dynamic often. Um, and I, I did not make it all the way through War and Peace. So I'm inspired by your grandma. (laughs) She inspires everybody. (laughs) I know. I have not read any Tolstoy and I am, I know that that is bad, but oh gosh, the Russians are a huge commitment though. You know, maybe Renina next summer. Ooh, that would be serious business. Yes. We'd all have to step up our game a little bit. We really would. I mean, Austin is complex and rich and wonderful, but she also uh, throws you a bone often. And I feel like Tolstoy doesn't necessarily do that. (laughs) His short stories are good too. Um, True. I have read some of those. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Question number two. Which Uh literary character do you most identify with and why? So as I was thinking about this question, I realized that it is really hard for me to think of literary characters that I identify with, but there are a lot of literary characters that haunt me, Um, Mm. that I fear being. Um, So one of them is Anna and Anna Karenina, maybe for so many reasons, but there's this penetrating line early on in the book where it says she despised the man who wanted to forgive her. And that just, um, and she ends up isolated and it's a, there's a lot there, but I think she sort of haunts me, um, her inability to receive forgiveness and her isolation and ultimate like paranoia. Um, I think, have you read remains of the day? No. Um, (laughs) And there's this, it's about this Butler who's sort of, has a strong sense of honor and service to the point that he fails to see his master's like Nazi sympathies. And it's this whole retelling where he's trying to like insist that he served an honorable man. And that sort of haunts me. Mm. Um, and Mrs. Jellyby and Bleak House, who's like trying to save the children in Africa and oh, her children. Oh, yes. <laughs> also oh, gosh, she me. is a haunting character. Yes. And I think Lady Russell, too, a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. as a pastor, people come to you for counsel. And sort of Austin's, medita- you know, ability to capture someone who's willing to give counsel, but not always the right counsel or for the right reasons is sort of haunting me a little bit. So Yes. Well, I think it's so funny that you bring up Lady Russell because now you're like, I know I talked about this last week with my grandma, but you're probably the third or fourth person who has said, I fear being Lady Russell. I'm afraid that I'm Lady Russell, which is so funny that this character has captured people in such a way. Um, and, and I can totally relate to that. I also fear being Lady Russell. Um, I think when you, when you have the gift of being interested in other people and interested in other people's stories um, you can sometimes succumb to Russellian instincts of offering things that really shouldn't be offered. Yeah. So, yeah. It will be good to have her on my shoulder in my study, checking me. <laughs> not that I'm making, not that I'm advising people not to marry people because they don't have a fortune, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's not one of your regular roles. That's good. I'm thankful for that. (laughs) All right. Number three, 
When was the first time you read a Jane Austen novel and what did you think at that time? So I can't pinpoint exactly. I think it was, I want to say eighth grade or ninth grade English at the end of the semester. And so we read it and then we got to watch the two, we read Pride and Prejudice and then we got to watch the two volume BBC version. Yes. With Colin Earth. Yes. Yes. But I will say, you know, I'm a few years older than you. And so I, the sum, my summer after sixth grade was the year that Clueless came out in the theaters. And I've yes. probably in the theaters at least three times. And <laughs> Clueless basically based on Emma. So I was taking in Jane Austen um, from an early, you know, much earlier. But so sixth grade, sometime eighth, ninth grade high school. And then I also have a very vivid memory of when, my third child, Lewis, was a tiny baby. We took him somewhere like very early on, first night out, and it was a total disaster. He was screaming the whole time. So eventually I just said, fine, I'm going to, you guys watch the basketball game. I'm in a hole up in this room. And I found Pride and Prejudice on a shelf and just started reading it. Um, and I had a more ambivalent reaction to Austin then, which sort of, I was maybe sharing a little bit about an email it was not long after reading Tolstoy and maybe some, maybe someone who's listening knows more about this, but my, my feeling is that like Tolstoy and Austin are both penetrating amazing um, writers of character and like capture the human personality and psyche so well, but it feels like Tolstoy does more description mm. and Austin does so much through dialogue. Yes. And I think, and so much of that dialogue is kind of a, a mode of indirect speech. And having grown up in the deep South, um, sometimes I feel like I'm trapped in conversations. And, and the one about the boots that we're about to get to is a classic example. This could be happening between members of my family and I could feel like I'm losing my mind. <laughs> I don't know if I can endure this in written form. So interesting. So I don't, sometimes I think as I've revisited Austin as an adult, I don't always have the, I don't know. I love her wit and her penetrating eye, but I don't always, sometimes I'm impatient with the dialogue. I'm not mm. is it, does it feel like it hits too close to home? Is that kind of the vibe? So it's kind of the vibe like, so with the boot scene, really, oh, this could be members of my family and yes. I would be impatient and I don't want to be reading this because I've lived this. Because it's too, um, too much. Or maybe like I've been listening to people as a pastor like all day long mm. and I know this is different, but I don't even want to be pretending to listen <laughs> in this way. <laughs> well, and as a pastor... You are listening on, on, I mean, you are performing a very Austinian task in that you are listening on one level to what is being said. Um, mm -hmm. So let's say you keep bringing up the boots conversation for our friends who need a refresher. Um, let's go to that because it's right at the beginning of that chapter. The first okay. chapter, uh -huh. seven which I am flipping through. All set. So we're in Bath. We're in Bath. Everybody's, I guess, Anne is out with her sort of group of friends, Miss Clay, Lady Dalrymple, and it's starting to rain. 
and there's a limited, some, you know, Lady Dalrymple can take one person back in her fancy carriage. And there's this extended conversation about who it will be. Yes. Uh, and so, okay. and as always, we know exactly what kind of carriage is being driven. Very yeah. important in Austin world. She always identifies the kind of carriage and they often play a cardinal role in the action. What's going on? Who can sit? Who's outside of the carriage? Um, who's left out? This is the conversation again at hand. Sure any of these. It would be great if someone could come up with images of Austin's carriages. I, uh, the carriages that appear in the novels. I... I don't this know is what a barouche. I don't know what that means. <laughs> a barouche is a, yeah, I'm not a Regency carriage expert, but a barouche is slightly larger than some of them. But it, as, as Austin says here, it doesn't hold more than four with comfort. Um, so they are debating on who should go in the carriage with the poor, boring doll rimples. Um, obviously, Elizabeth is going to be one of those but who will be the fourth person? And the conversation is who can uh, sort of uh, suffer inconvenience the most. And it, but it's all happening under the guise of whose boots are the thickest Mm -hmm. and who doesn't mind rain. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what we, (laughs) so what's going on at face level is who's going to ride in the carriage. What's going on underneath Mm -hmm. that is um Mm -hmm. who is going to uh graciously give up their place should it be Anne? should it be mrs clay who would be the obvious choice like if you were just looking at the surface but obviously there's like way more going on there and so what i feel like to go back to what i was saying you as a pastor and as a southerner reading this you're used to these polite conversations of who can be the most polite, who's going to like sacrifice the most, but uh-huh. inwardly there's a constant social tally going on. Um, that is, that can be very exhausting. Mm-hmm. The, the worst of Southern culture and church culture can be that. And I've truly had this conversation, you know, taking a walk on the farm, like, oh, no, let me push the stroller. You don't have on the right flip-flops. No, I'll go back to the house, you know, and no one will state directly what they want. And it's not, you know, reading this, looking back and reading this, you see there's much more conniving going on with Mrs. Clay. And I don't think it's always so, I don't think it's malicious as often in my experience, but this is the kind of indirect speech or the conversation with Henrietta on the beach, you know, yes. about, which I thought, oh, I've like, I've been a part of these conversations. For <laughs> I've got, I do not want to read this. Like I can't enjoy this. <laughs> this is so funny to me because not having grown up in the American South and maybe too, if uh, I don't know, maybe folks um, in the UK can relate to that as well, mm-hmm. since they also have more of a culture of, that but I grew up in Arizona which is not like a particular it's not like people are mean but it's not like a particularly polite society setting it's California inflected it's like people wear swimsuits to church in the summer sometimes like it's very casual very kind of what you see is what you get not all the time obviously but so for me reading this and 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 especially this passage is hilarious because in retrospect, 
much. Sorry if this spoils the end, but Mrs. Clay is playing a long-term game here. She wants to be with Mr. Elliot as much as possible. And so her whole thing about, oh, my boots are thicker, blah, 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 is actually her making a play for Mr. Elliot, which is hilarious and which Austin totally has this whole time in the back of her mind. Anne obviously has no idea. Anne is just being Anne. Where can I be the most helpful? Also, Anne is probably going, oh God, like get me out of this carriage ride with Lady Dalrymple, who is boring, and with Elizabeth. Like she genuinely would rather take a walk in the rain with Mr. Elliot. But um, for me reading this, I go, oh my gosh, all of this is going on in conversation. Like I'm I'm so obsessed with this. This is crazy. Um, And for you reading this, you're going, oh my gosh, this is just too much. This is, uh, I know what this is like, and I don't want to do it again. <laughs> like, and I'm so interested in that. Yeah. Particularly for a certain generation yes. in this, you know, like more of my parents' generation, that sort of indirect speech. Yes. Um, it, it's always that way. No one will ask you directly to do something or state directly what they want. Um, so. Yes. And what's interesting here is that actually, um, you are in common with Anne here where Anne doesn't really like that either. And where we see like, that's what she doesn't necessarily trust about Mr. Elliot is that his motives are so hidden, so unknown versus Wentworth who really, as far as he's very polite, his manners are impeccable. But as far as the society goes, he is way more upfront. We know when he feels contempt, we know when he's angry uh, we know when he's distant and we know when he's embarrassed. Um, and that's coming very quickly in this chapter. I was going to say, can I read you that quote from the end of chapter five about Mr. Elliot? It's not my section. Yes, yes, I, read it, please. Please in the do. End of chapter five, Anne is reflecting on Mr. Elliot. And she says, Mr. Elliot was rational, discreet, polished, but he was not open. There was never any burst of feeling, any warmth of indignation or delight at the evil or good of others. This to Anne was a decided imperfection. Um, And that's such a, she doesn't trust him because there's never an unguarded response. And that's such a contrast to what we see. Should we just go ahead and go there? Yes. Captain Wentworth, when they encounter each other in Bath and he's not comfortable, not easy and not able to feign that he was. Yes. And so we see when Captain, so Anne has had the advantage of seeing him already. So she's able to control her emotions and hide her agitation. He, however, is completely caught off guard. And she, under the guise of seeing if it rained, which is so Uh funny, she goes over and um, Captain Wentworth actually walks in the door. And here, here's what happens. He was more obviously struck and confused by the sight of her than she had ever observed before. He looked quite red. For the first time since their renewed acquaintance, she felt that she was betraying the least sensibility of the two. Mm-hmm. And sensibility, by the way, is uh, a term for emotion, an emotional response. Um, we don't really use it that way anymore, but that's how it's being used here. So the least sensibility of the two. She had the advantage of him in the preparation of the last few moments. All the overpowering, blinding, bewildering first effects of strong surprise were over with her. Still, however, she had enough to feel. It was agitation, pain, pleasure, a a something between delight and misery. He spoke to her and then turned away. The character of his manner was embarrassment. She could not have called it either cold or friendly or anything so certainly as embarrassed. And of course, Mr. Elliot 
doesn't get embarrassed. He's not somebody whose emotions are that close to the surface that he could be embarrassed or caught off guard. He's that controlled, that guarded. Mm-hmm. And this is endear. It's funny because this is endearing to Anne and other people in yes. Captain Wentworth, but she herself is very guarded, I think, in her sort of public yes. portrayal. Like she, um, just on the page before, she sees Captain Wentworth and she says her start, it says her start was perceptible only to herself, but she instantly felt she was the greatest simpleton in the world. So she's sort of, have you, does that seem right to you? Have you yes. picked up on that? Like she always monitoring how she, she's fairly guarded and what she kind oh, of Oh, she's extremely like, guarded. Yes. Yes. She loves seeing in someone else in Captain Wentworth, that ability to be unguarded and open. Yes. No, Anne is perpetually suffering from what I like to call the day after the sleepover feeling (laughs) where you were at the sleepover with your friends. You shared a little bit too much about yourself, who you had a crush on at that moment. And the next day you are suffering these intense regrets of, oh my gosh, I've bared my soul to these people. And really the reality of the fact is Probably nobody cares or is really thinking that much about it, but you're feeling like you're feeling that morning after the sleepover feeling. And I feel like Anne perpetually is like guarding herself so she doesn't feel that feeling. Uh-huh. She's very self-conscious. Um, this might be taking us into another topic, but I told you in my email that I'm kind of annoyed that they're meeting in Bath. I just don't like it. <laughs> I need help me get help me think more broadly about this. And so as I'm trying to think about why does Austin do this? You know, we have these really, these really well-drawn places. Like we have Kellett Hall, we have Upper Cross, we have Lime, and then we have Bath. And we're not supposed to, you know, she doesn't introduce Bath in a very flattering way. Right. The smoking buildings in the gray, blah, blah, blah. The noisy. Yeah. And I think if it were me, you know, I would have wanted to write them getting together at Upper Cross because it's warm and it's mirth and it's hearth, you know, but there's something very public and social about their whole life in Bath, you know, like it all takes place in the street at the concert, um, you know, and the, at the card. And so maybe this does more to advance the idea of Anne becoming publicly known or publicly seen. Mm, That's a good point. At Upper Crosswood, but help me. I just, I just wish they were at Upper Cross. (laughs) Well, I I do feel like Upper Cross is one of those uh, places that appeals to modern readers probably even more than it appealed to Jane Austen's readers because we think of Upper Cross and I love the Musgroves. Like, I think they are... I think we totally would have been friends. I think they seem really fun. And um, and you're right. Their home is warm. They're the ones who first start paying attention to Anne. They're the mm-hmm. ones who welcome all these children into their house, which is this interesting, odd thing for Jane Austen to focus more on that aspect. So that's one thing. But I think, so Bath works on a narrative level for one for one thing, because... Society in Bath gives you the opportunity to run into each other in ways that in the country, you wouldn't have these moments of Wentworth walking into the, to the gathering, to the assembly rooms of, um, of the theater, of concerts. Um, this isn't happening in these country homes like Kellynch or, or um, where the Musgroves are. 
And so narratively, plot-wise, this helps them to have these continual interactions with each other. So that's one thing. But Jane Austen's very clever. She's not dependent on the right. on her plot or on her narrative. So we know that it's got to be more than that as well. So my thought on it is that why meet in Bath? I think in your email, you said that um, you were used to, yeah, I know it's like there's some redemptive stuff to it, but that just feels like kind of not everything you wanted the answer to be. Mm-hmm. I do think you're right about that. There's a measure of redemption to this where there's a measure of irony in these smoking buildings that mm-hmm. love is reborn Mm-hmm. That Anne is seeing Wentworth in this position of weakness, whereas he was always the one with the power, right? In the Musgrove's drawing room, he's the hero. He's the one who has this audulation. And in Bath, where Anne was dreading, he's actually the one who's writhing with jealousy while Mr. Elliot is flirting with her. Um, who is embarrassed and red-faced. And it's where he has come to seek her out specifically. Um, Which I probably shouldn't have said that because we don't know that yet. But yes, that is happening. Um, But I think that what it is, is that it is that publicly being known. It's that Anne now has become, and as we'll see with Mrs. Smith in these chapters, she's become a topic of gossip which she certainly was not that ever before. Um, She is, she's having this version of herself that is the version that could marry Mr. Elliot, right? Uh The version that is socially desirable, that even in Wentworth's party, um, we'll see here, this very same sequence Mr. Elliot walks in, takes Anne away. Mm-hmm. Um, Captain Wentworth remembers him mm-hmm. and uh, knows immediately, oh, that's the guy who looked at Anne with admiration. Um, and so Mr. Elliot and Anne walk away and mm-hmm. the, the ladies of Captain Wentworth's party begin to talk about her. So again, Anne is being talked about, Anne's being noticed. And they say, oh, Mr. Elliot, he's definitely into Anne. Like, he, there's, there's something going on there. One can only guess what will happen. Definitely, um, I think that, I think a marriage is on its way. And then they say, Anne Elliot, she's very pretty. I admire her more than her sister. And all this is extremely unusual. And again, not going to happen in the familiar places where they've all been. So Anne is coming into her own in a different way in Bath. And she's the person that Mr. Elliot can admire here. But what's going to be really interesting is that that's not where she stays. Bath is not where they stay. Bath is not the final resting place. And so I think that's also important in why would it happen here instead of, I think there's Austin's thinking through what different kinds of society offer and where, and even though things can happen in in a particular place like Bath, in a particular kind of society like Bath, romances are easier to happen there but you can still reject it for something better and different, which mm. is what we'll see, I think. Uh, yeah. I, I'd forgotten that they don't stay there, which, <laughs> but, but also I, I'm just thinking too, it's kind of interesting that her family, you know, 
her sister and father go to Bath to remake the family themselves. Yes. But it's really kind of Anne who undergoes this dramatic transformation in Bath. Yes. Um, so I think that makes me like it a little bit better, that it was sort of their plan to remake the family um, or they were forced into it. But Anne is really the one who becomes the sought after topic of, is really the one who's kind of remade or seen. Yes. I really like that too. And I think there's a quote I want to talk to you about um, with Mr. Elliot about learning and learning where to pin your happiness. And it's actually in a very negative context with Mr. Elliot. We'll get there in a minute. But I think that part of it is that Austin is so interested in how people learn and how people change and transform. And Elizabeth and Sir Walter are incapable of that. They have become incapable. Um, They're so self-absorbed, so vain, so filled with the wrong type of pride that they're incapable of moral and spiritual transformation, um, of learning their happiness is anywhere else other than in their aggrandizement. Mm -hmm. And, And I think that that what we're seeing in Bath is all these different ways of learning to be in the world and that it comes out more in a place like Bath where there's coming and going. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that helps me. I can, I can learn to love Bath. You don't have to. I think that's the glory of it is that you can be like, oh, it's weird that this happens in Bath and not like Bath and move on. Go join the Royal Navy with the Wentworths. <laughs> Well, I'm interested to see too when these new adaptations come out. If I, when I see, like, if if visually seeing this makes me feel different. Like, yeah, I don't know. So, okay, have you seen any of the other um, persuasion adaptations? So, there's a uh, PBS BBC one from like mm, 2007, maybe, maybe a little bit later, and then there's like a 1994 version. Huh. And I really need to rewatch the the 94 version because I don't really remember what they do with bath i remember the cob very well in that one but bath i don't remember but the 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 20 the 2007 or whatever one that is that was bbc pbs they have a very interesting scene with bath uh, that like prominently highlights like the georgian architecture of bath and the really famous like curving street that you can still see today never been to Bath. I would really like to go someday, but um, it's the famous one that people recognize. And uh, you'll have to watch that and see if that changes your mind. And I'd be interested to know. Okay. I will do that. Yeah. Homework. Homework. Watch the adaptation of that one. It's a weird scene. I actually, I'm not going to like ruin it and, and talk about it, but I have very mixed feelings about it. So I would be extra interested to know what you think. All right. Mm-hmm. Think about it. Um, okay. So then we have um, Mrs. Smith. Actually, wait, I want to first talk about this hilarious scene with Lady Russell. Mm-hmm. That I forgot about. <laughs> uh, and sees Wentworth on the street again. Mm-hmm. And she notices Lady Russell's looking out the window in Wentworth's direction. And she's like caught in agony. Like, what is she thinking? Oh my gosh. Um, 
Lady Russell's eyes being turned exactly in the direction of him, of her being, in short, intently observing him. She could thoroughly comprehend the sort of fascination he must possess over Lady Russell's mind. The difficulty it must be for her to withdraw her eyes. The astonishment she must be feeling that eight or nine years should have passed over him and in foreign climes and in active service, too, without robbing him of one personal grace. And then Lady Russell speaks up and she says... You will wonder what has been fixing my eye for so long, but I was looking after some window curtains with which Lady Alicia and Mrs. Franklin were telling me of last night. They described the drawing room window curtains of one of the houses on this side of the way and this part of the street as being the handsomest and best hung of any in Bath, but couldn't recollect the exact number, and I've been trying to find out which it could be. <laughs> oh. No. <laughs> It's a little bit of like a preview, but not so bad. What we have with Miss Smith, you know, where she's with this person, this companion by whom she feels known, but they're actually totally missing each other. Yes. Yes. That's a great parallel, actually. Yes. And it just goes back to um, Austin is so interested in this book with this idea of like, what people are interested in and what's foremost in their minds, you can never read it and you must constantly adapt yourself to whatever it's going to be. So for Anne, we see that with her transition from Kellynch to being with the Musgroves and how she's like, and then back to Bath and nobody cares about what happened in the other place and how like distressing that is for her. Uh Um, And that's actually a sign of Mr. Elliot's like of a good part of him is that he's asking about what happened in in, um, in, at the Cobb and uh, is interested in it actually and showing interest. Um, But overall in this book, it's kind of bleak about like people being interested in each other and really being able to read each other. It doesn't happen even with really, really good intention characters like Lady Russell. I um yeah I liked what you and Jessica were saying about like Mr. Elliot. There's an ethic of conversation in that moment, like a positive ethic. Yes. Would you call the negative? But then the negative is that sort of indirect speech where people aren't attending to each other, but they're constantly prattling. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. Um, I don't know what that seems like the, the opposite, which we have here. Yes, and I think like I think you're you're right, and I think that um. Part of this is on Anne, where she hasn't been honest with Lady Russell either. So it's not entirely Lady Russell's fault that she is scanning the street for curtains when Anne's true love is walking, like, right below her and she totally misses it. So this is also on Anne and her own lack of transparency and how she doesn't necessarily create the conditions herself either for this kind of truly connecting conversation which is interesting yeah can I so this is sort of related to that and I sort of just wanted to say it so uh so there's all these interesting and self-reflections where she's sort of berating herself earlier in the chapter (laughs) for wanting to look out at Captain Wentworth you know and saying she's you know, uh when half of her is so much wiser no stop analyzing your motives And then the next page, she says she hopes to be wise and reasonable in time, but alas, she's not. So that sort of self-consciousness. Yes. Then on the very next page, after this whole thing with Lady Russell, she hears about this concert that's going to happen. And she says, um, she's imagining talking to Captain Wentworth there. And she says, as to the power of addressing him, 
she felt all over courage if the opportunity occurred. So she's finding this strength and courage, but I guess, it, but it's in relation to Wentworth. It's not necessarily in relation to these other people around her. Yes. Um, and what's, that's a really interesting passage that I actually overlooked. Um, and you're right. It's, so it says though that where she's drawing this courage from too is that um Elizabeth had turned from him Lady uh-huh. Russell overlooked him her nerves were strengthened by these circumstances she felt that she owed him attention uh-huh. and where Anne finds strength and courage we've seen is in uh-huh her ideas of duty and what is owed to another person. So why is she faithful to a a loser dad? It's because she feels like what's owed to him. Why is she present to her two lame sisters? Because she feels like it's her duty to be present to them. And so I, I think it's, that's such a, um, so embedded in her character is what is owed to the people I'm around based on my relationship with them and on other people's relationships with them. And that is part of her like sort of calculus in determining her action. And in, um, and so I think that's where that courage is coming from. Now that, that makes sense. Like now that in some ways it's a little bit anonymous because nobody's watching, which we'll see in the next, but also, yeah, she finds some strength in feeling like she's caring for this neglected person. Yes. Um, And her sense of to whom she has a duty or owes honor has shifted in the last eight years. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And she goes on to Mrs. Smith for the same reason, right? We see her going to Mrs. Smith because she promised to go visit her. And um, and that's where we go into the next chapter. Chapter 8 is that she's going to see Mrs. Smith, but not quite yet. Instead, she's going to um, this at the rooms in the evening, the gathering places. And Mrs. Smith says, I have a foreboding that I may not have many more visits from you. That's just yes. a great end of the chapter. Yes. Setting us up. Yes. And what Mrs. Smith is such, actually, that will be interesting to see in the adaptations too, is what they do with Mrs. Smith. Because actually, I feel like she's this key character who kind of gets overlooked, or at least I overlook her. Like, I kind of forget about her. But my, my, Grandmother reminded me last week, like, what a major character she is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in the previous chapters where she's kind of, where Austin's talking about what it means to be a good country landlord, she sort of mentions duties to the poor. Mm-hmm. But this feels like the most sustained engagement with somebody that falls in that sort of, on you know, on the margins kind of class. Yes, yes. So, it felt like that came right in time when I was starting to, you know, I was curious about it. She kind of hit it in passing. And yes. then Mrs. Smith. Yes, definitely. Um, so Anne and Wentworth meet again. Mm-hmm. 
And Anne is relieved because her father and sister are behind her. So she can't see them. So she feels like she can say whatever, do whatever she needs to do, which is hilarious. Uh So telling. And Elizabeth and Sir Walter decide to acknowledge Captain Wentworth, which um, for those of you unfamiliar, uh, hopefully you've, you've probably seen enough uh, Regency like adaptations and TV shows and shows to know that when you don't acknowledge somebody, you don't say hi, you, that's like a big deal. It's indicating not only like, it's not, it goes back to what Goody and I were just talking about with the, all the subtext going on. It's not just that you don't want to say hi to them. It's, it's not like you are hiding from like your high school classmate in a grocery store that you've seen unexpectedly. It's like, (laughs) it's um, that you are cutting them. You are um, saying you're not worth knowing. So I'm not, I'm going to pretend like you aren't there because I don't want to associate with you at all. So it's extremely intentional and very offensive. The fact that they notice Wentworth here shows that they are deciding he's worth being known. Um, He's worthy of acknowledgement. And so that in itself is a big deal, even though it's cold. And it shows that um, Wentworth's star is rising, so to speak. Um. What do you make of this scene, Goody? Oh, I, uh, you know, the, the conversation is a little bit painful. Yes. Between the two of them. Uh, I like that he, again, is, you know, he has a, so they're talking about the getting together of Benwick and Louisa. Um, and in some ways, there's such a, such a relief there and such a kind of girlish, you know, yes. you're in sixth grade and you're talking to the boy you have a crush on about <laughs> your friend, you know, and finding out all this information. There's something, yes. there's something, some part of me in my past could really relate to. Yes. Um, and this is really what gives her confidence that his emotions are, you know, that his love is still there. Um, and then he says a little too much again, which, which Anne is, is one of these endearing qualities where he says, well, the, you know, they have no opposition in the form of parents. And then he stops short because they're both remembering, but they can't say it. They never, yes. not until much later do they actually name their past. They yes. talk about it to other people in a theoretical way, um, but they, they don't acknowledge it to each other. Yes. And I think, so the word recollections is mentioned like probably five times in this whole sequence. Like both of them blush at different recollections, like different words create these recollections. There's this really strong thread of memory that is pulling all of this together. Um, And I'm, and, and I know I've said this before, I've said this last time, but that this is something that is is so central in this novel is how does memory create your action? How does memory create who you are? It's this very like Augustine's confessions kind of theme of how much of you actually is memory. Like how much of what you do is from your memory. And in this section, we can see that almost all of this is these tiny little touchstones of memory that is just driving both of them. And it's kind of fascinating having just talked about her her absolute miss in the present with Lady Russell, that we are yet capable of sometimes, like we can completely miss each other in the present, 
but we can sometimes accurately share memories. Yes. The memories from the past that we share can be held in common and animate the present. Uh, that's a possibility, even though it's also possible to totally miss each other. So, yes. And you know what? That's a really fascinating point is that, um, Anne and Lady Russell are missing each other because their memories of the past event differ so much. Their memories have shaped them so, so that they can't recognize what's happening like right now, right this instant. Whereas for Anne and Wentworth, whose memories are so painfully close, so painfully connected, that it makes the present moment painful for that very reason. And, and they are meeting on such a close connected ground, which is so interesting. Huh? Yeah. And I've definitely experienced the opposite too, where someone is recollecting something to me and I don't remember it the same way. Yes. Um, And that's painful in a different, awkward, awkwardly painful, not like a shared pain. Um, Yes. Yes. But this is really, yeah, I, I guess hopeful. Austin's hopeful about how we can share the past, even if it's not, even if the past and we aren't sort of, we don't fully know the past and present or share it in common, even with all of our closest confidants, like Lady Russell or Mrs. Smith, sometimes we can connect in that way. Or at least if you're Anne and Captain Wentworth. Yes. Yeah. I'm really interested. Austin is, she keeps returning to this idea of, places of suffering and places of memory and how, how that relates to present pleasure, which is a very strange Mm -hmm. idea. And I'm still kind of wrestling with what she is pulling on there. Like what she's trying to tease out of that situation. Do you have any thoughts about what that could be? Well, I'm just realizing that maybe some of my angst about the place is, you know, she's, she knows what she's doing. Like putting people in particular places in painful places too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, yeah. I mean, they have that conversation about Lyme where he sort of says, this must've been a place of suffering for you. Yes. Cause she says, I would like to go back to Lyme. I would like to see it again. And he's like, seriously, you would, I, I would think that you would not want to return because the recollections uh-huh. must be painful. And she says, no. One does not love a place the less for having suffered in it, unless it has been all suffering, nothing but suffering, which was by no means the case at Lyme. Uh Uh-huh. I don't know exactly what she's, she sort of, yeah, I don't know exactly what she's doing there. She definitely, in some of her, as she reflects on this reconnection with Wentworth, she talks about it as being pain and happiness. Yes. But then she's throwing in place as this sort of, something an aid to memory yes and emotion yes and every time she has a pleasurable emotion and it is accompanied by pain it's never purely pleasurable or purely happy so even when in this is such a human moment um at the very end of this chapter where um it's obvious that Wentworth is jealous of Mr. Elliot because Mr. Elliot has been paying Anne this very devoted attention throughout this evening at the concert. Um, and this line also cracked me up. Uh, Anne says, is not this song worth staying for? <laughs> uh, and, and Wentworth is like, 
serious drama king right here. He's like, no, there is nothing worth my staying for. He replied impressively. Um, And that just makes me giggle because it's so dramatic. It's like, oh my gosh, Wentworth. Like, okay. But um, then Anne Anne is thinking, we see inside her head, Uh jealousy of Mr. Elliot. It was the only intelligible motive. Captain Wentworth, jealous of her affection, could she have believed it a week ago, three hours ago? For a moment, the gratification was exquisite. (laughs) But alas, there were very different thoughts to succeed. And then she says, basically, it was misery to think about what Mr. Elliot's actions might have done. The evil was incalculable. So even these moments of joy, glee, exquisite gratification, there's always something that um, is painful in them as well. Yes. Yeah. No, right after she has that great initial conversation with Wentworth, she says, they're almost too interesting conversation must be broken up for a time, but slight was the penance compared with the happiness, you know? Yes. So she's like yes. there's penance for the happiness. Uh, yeah. It's weird. I've never yeah. noticed this before, this counteracting always pleasure pain language. I'll have to think about that and see if I can wrap my head around what she's doing there. Cause that's really interesting, but okay. We really need to talk about chapter nine yes. because this is something that both you and I struggled with as we read this is this whole conversation with Mrs. Smith. Um, oh, by the way, we have a <laughs> flattering, but painful at the start of this chapter beginning thinking recollecting what happened last night all these themes they're just pounded home so with people that are in the future weeks I would love to know like are there moments where we see Anne just happy like it's not inflected by pain or regret or penance Uh, track that for me this is a super important question and I absolutely will make sure I talk about it and next week is the final week so that really is the the question that all this boils down to and Scott is coming on um and so hopefully he'll have some good thoughts about it but yes yes um okay so we have they're discussing they're talking about the concert they're making casual conversation and Mrs. Smith is interestingly very close to the truth and also very far off from the truth at the same time. She says, you are better employed because Anne, it's clear that Anne didn't really pay that much attention to the concert. She had other things on her mind. And um, Mrs. Smith sees that Anne has an extra consciousness about her that she's feeling embarrassed and self-conscious, but like in a very pleasurable sort of sense. Uh And Mrs. Smith says, your countenance perfectly informs me that you were in company last night with the person whom you think the most agreeable in the world, the person who interests you at this present time more than all the rest of the world put together. But she's talking about Mr. Elliot. Yes. And this is so painful because you think I'm reflecting on the theme of being known that you were talking about a few weeks earlier. You think, ah, Anne has a friend that knows her, but no. And not yes. only does she not know her, but she's mm, not even forthright with her. Yes. And this, I think, is the toughest part of this whole chapter to me. So let's do a little recap of what's happening here. 
And then we can really get to the good stuff and try to dig in how can we make sense of this whole sequence because there's something so odd. So they're talking and Mrs. Smith is sort of probing, does Mr. Elliot know I'm here? Blah, blah, blah. Anna's now going, oh, crap, you think that I'm in love with Mr. Elliot. I really need to dispel this notion. Um, I'm not going to marry him. I, why would you think that I'm going to marry him? What's going on in your mind? And um, there's this bizarre moment where Mrs. Smith says, let me plead for my present friend. I cannot call him, but for my former friend. Where can you look for a more suitable match? Where could you expect a more gentlemanlike, agreeable man? Let me recommend Mr. Elliot. I am sure you hear nothing but good of him from Colonel Wallace. And who can know him better than Colonel Wallace? So that's weird. This uh-huh. is weird. Uh, my dear Miss Elliot, I hope and trust you'll be very happy. Mr. Elliot has sense to understand the value of such a woman. Your peace will not be shipwrecked as mine has been. You are safe in all worldly matters and safe in his character. He will not be led astray. He will not be misled by others to his ruin. And Anne says, sure, sure, I, I can believe that, but it's not Mr. Elliot. It's not Mr. Elliot. Um, and she stopped and regrets, again, sleepover feeling that she had implied so much. <laughs> and Mrs. Smith says, oh, oh, okay. There's somebody else. There's somebody else out there in the world. And then... Mrs. Smith explains herself that um, Mm -hmm. Nurse Rook had kind of filled her in. Then she tells her history with Mr. Elliot. And this is where things get really weird. We finally learn, okay, yeah, we were right. There was something wrong about Mr. Elliot this entire time that we couldn't put our fingers on. Here it is right now. Mm -hmm. Mr. Elliot is a man without heart or conscience, a designing, wary, cold-blooded being who thinks only of himself, who for his own interest or ease would be guilty of any cruelty, any treachery that could be perpetrated without risk of his general character. He has no feeling for others. Those whom he has been the chief cause of leading into ruin, he can neglect and desert without the slightest compunction. He is totally beyond the reach of any sentiment of justice or compassion. He is black at heart. What the heck? (laughs) This is so, it's so, I mean, it's, it's gratifying that Anne was right. You know, that her said, like, she's a good judge of character. Mm Mm-hmm at least with Mr. Elliot, except where her dear friend, Miss Smith has just lied to her face. Yes. And I think what gets, I think the hardest part for me. So she goes on and tells more about what happened and how Mr. Elliot has failed to um, help her even in her presence and in the present moment. I think a part of, and she shows Anne this letter, right? I think what's, hardest and I said this in the email is how she says you know basically Miss Smith defends herself for having lied to him like yes. she's like, well I more or less considered him your husband and I couldn't have spoken ill against him and maybe it would have been okay because you're stronger than his first wife and Austin doesn't what does Austin want us to think there I can't I don't see her interrogating it but that feels uh I think for her to lie and then justify lying 
is so devastating. Right. Because it is a lie. I mean, that's what makes it, because uh, it, when you go back and reread it all, she, it's not a lie of omission even, which is how I kind of want to read it. But when you really read it, it's not a lie of omission. She is saying you can trust this man's character. And then it turns says, out, oh, he has no character. And she says he's led people into ruin. Yes. Um, yes. And and so that's also what I find really hard about this. And I so the one of the things that I think about is this is a moment where perhaps our gulf from Jane Austen in the present day is farther and deeper than we sometimes think when we read her because she writes such relatable characters. We put ourselves in their place because it's really easy to do that. But here we see a cultural difference that is uh, that reminds us sort of suddenly, oh yeah, we're not living in the Regency period and we really don't understand how that works. So I think part of it is that um, both of them live in a society where if you were engaged or married your duty and your loyalty was to your husband above all else, even to the point of uh, looking past these sort of devastating, um, horrific uh, character flaws. Mm -hmm. So um, whereas today we would go, oh, if I knew something about your fiance, that made me go, oh, this guy he's not a good egg. Like he's bad. You should not marry him. I would feel compelled to tell you, even if it meant you casting me off as a friend. Right. And you would do the same for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this society, we're seeing maybe something where that's not the case. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I'm, that's one guess I have. Another mm-hmm. guess I have is that we're seeing that Mrs. Smith is a um, a desperate woman mm-hmm. who wants Anne's influence in her life and is willing to lie to keep that influence, which mm-hmm. is very devastating as well. Anne's friend mm-hmm. who who is valuing potentially Anne's influence upon Mr. Elliot and how it can help her over the destruction of Anne's potential life happiness. Yes. Ouch. And it- and they remain friends, which mm-hmm. is amazing. I think, I don't know if I'm prepared to give Miss Smith this benefit of the doubt, but it seems possible to that. You know, the one thing she says to Anne is, um, you know, his first wife was too ignorant and giddy for respect and that she was lower class. Like Miss Smith seems to think that Anne's status will somehow protect her yes. from Mr. Elliot's bad character. Yes. Where she thinks that because Anne is higher status, not a low woman, as she calls uh, the poor previous Mrs. Elliot, um, that, that Mr. Elliot won't treat her as poorly as he treated his first wife because he doesn't have that contempt and disdain for her that he had for his first wife, who he married for purely mercenary reasons. Mm-hmm. I think it's hard for me to intellectually get there and understand how that might be the case, but Maybe if I'm giving Miss Smith the benefit of the doubt, there could be something to that. Yes. And I think it's where we go. Again, this might be a sort of like Lady Russell moment for Mrs. Smith, where Mrs. Smith feels like, okay, so she's going to marry a rich guy. He'll treat her fine. He's not a good person, but he's not going to like beat her 
Uh Um, it's going to be okay. I'm not going to like ruin that for her. Um, because I value the financial security that she's going to have with this match, um, Mm -hmm. that I don't have. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to like intervene. I feel like that's the kind of best case scenario you can put on that. Mm -hmm. Um, where it's just, again, it's about the different values of decision-making where we know, because we have seen Anne's heart, we know that this would be devastating for her. Yes. It would be the ruin of her life if she married Mr. Elliot, if she listened to that voice of like sort of, again, it's a prudence question. What mm-hmm. kind of prudence are you going to follow? Are you going to follow the prudence of the world? He's wealthy. You would sit in your mother's place in the hall. You would be the restorer of Kellynch. You would be respected by all of society. Or are you going to listen? There too. I hadn't thought about until you just said it too. Like there's memories, not her memories of Wentworth, but memories. Sorry to interrupt you, but I just, that would sort of fund that desire to marry Mr. Elliot. Yes. Yes. And that's Lady Russell's whole reasoning. And I think Mrs. Smith is following that sort of worldly prudence of like, well, why wouldn't she do that? That makes perfect sense. That -hmm. would be a great decision for her. Um, You're not following on the, on the tail of Elizabeth and Sir Walter anymore. You've really come into your own versus the prudence as, as the um, sort of faculty that allows memory and reason to inform your decisions where Anne goes, she has to make a decision with her whole heart and her whole mind. And that's why she could not marry um, Mr. Elliot without severe damage to her soul, basically. Mm. Yeah. Like prudence that allows memory and and primarily kind of your own memories and not a collective or knowing who to trust, I guess is mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. and when. Yeah. So yeah, it's a really ambivalent though moment. Like it's it, it doesn't put Mrs. Smith in a great light. But it also doesn't damn her either, or it shouldn't. At least Austin doesn't believe it should, even though we might feel that it does. Like, I, I know when I read that, I go, ooh, I, I don't think I would want to be friends with her anymore. But for Anne, that's clearly not the case. And I don't think it is for Austin either. I think Austin is not using her harshest language for her. We, I mean, we definitely can tell when Austin turns on the really severe judgmental language on her characters. This is not one of those times. Which oh, is odd. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think that that baffled me. I'm helped now. I think this was one of the most painful scenes in the book for me, for Anne. Yes. Probably second to the, to Wentworth's remark to whoever that she was much altered. Yes. Um, this is, and, and because that near miss of being known, but I'm also so, but you also see so much strength here because she's clearly being acted on. You know, the gossip mill has basically already made, you know, predicted this marriage to Wentworth. It's more or less going to happen. And you see her kind of resisting all of these people. So in some ways it's really painful. In some ways it's really beautiful because you see her yes. strength. Um, yes. No, I think you're right. I think this is a moment where Anne's newfound strength and courage, we see it more, more and more clearly emerging. 
that we w- she wouldn't have reacted this way necessarily. Uh, you and know. it's someone who needs her help, yes. right? And so, she, but she doesn't just take the bait to say, "Oh, I'll help you by marrying." Yes, you know. Yeah. Um, so, huh? I think that begs another question for me that is related to all of these um, ideas we've been tracing, like being known, being seen, um, the role of memory in, in relationships, which is what does Austin consider true friendship? Like what is friendship to her? Hmm. That's a really big question. I know, (laughs) but the book kind of, uh, yeah, I don't want to spoil it, but I think the way that she sort of talks about family and the end of the book and Lady Russell and Mrs. Smith, like clearly a true companion can be deeply flawed, you know, like you can yes. have, they can have really hurt you. Yes. Um, and have wrong motives and wrong reasoning uh-huh. at times. And in those two, Lady Russell and Mrs. Smith, there's kind of a they don't, they're not from her, you know, Lady Russell's from her same class. Mrs. Smith is not. Well, was originally, but no longer is. Right. So would that have been, would that, I mean, it seems like there's some people who say, why are you going to see her? Would that, would it have been unusual to keep up that connection? Oh, I think for a lot of people it would have. Um, I mean, we have that whole section from the last group of chapters where Sir Walter just goes off on her like oh the carriage drawing up to the Westgate buildings and Elliot what taste do you have in people blah 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 and it's just really gross um but I think that um this is sort of like Anne's version of what she's seeing in the Navy where it, it Austin is really interested in um this new leveling of of cross class friendships where somebody like Wentworth who doesn't have money can all of a sudden become somebody with money and be, and then receive the this attention from people that he wasn't receiving before. Um, but that doesn't mean true friendship. But there is a possibility of true friendship across these divides of money, of land, and, and this book is opening up those possibilities more. Mm-hmm. The Navy does that, but then also somebody like Anne who sees the sort of vapid friendships like Lady Dalrymple and her father, for instance, mm-hmm. that she's rejecting and trying to figure out what friendship really entails, what a good friend means, what they look like. Yeah. yeah. That's a, it's this chapter ends with her desire for Lady Russell to know. Uh, Interesting. Yes. And I can't remember, but does she, we never, do we ever get a scene where she tells Lady Russell? I don't think we do um, in the coming chapters. Like she keeps getting put off in her ability to tell her, which is just interesting. That is interesting. You're right. Um, we don't have this like instant gratification of this scene where Anne rushes in. Lady Russell, listen to what I've heard. We don't see it. We don't get it. Yeah. Like we don't get this sort of, we don't get to glory in Lady Russell being set straight. Yeah. Uh, with Anne. No. 
We don't. I'm going to have to think about that for the next chapters because I'm kind of forgetting like Lady Russell's reaction to these things. Um, and, and I think you're right. I think, I don't think we get to see it. I mean, obviously she'll see the full picture later. Um, but, but it is interesting. And it's actually really sweet that Anne is, is like, I have to tell Lady Russell this because she still loves her so. And she has to share this with her so that, Lady Russell isn't on this weird path anymore with Mr. Elliot. And um, I like that, that she still has that affection for her. Mm-hmm. Like it's sweet to see her between her two friends, you know, Miss Smith, uh-huh. Russell, even as her affection for Wentworth is growing, it's nice to see yes. her friendships remain important. Yeah, it is. It is. Well, on that note, friendship. Um, that's something for us to think about in the next, oh, and also maybe something for everybody to think about is what's the relationship or is, is there a difference? Is there not a difference between, um, friendship and like love, like romantic love? What's the role friendship plays in that? Um, which I'm curious about with Wentworth coming up and, um, I really look forward to, thinking through all these questions for next time. Cause I, I feel like we're just ratcheting up getting to this grand finale. And I love that it's you and Scott talking. <laughs> about, yeah. I know. I know. I was like, you have to talk about the end with me. You have to, since um, it's this romantic moment, it fits. Scott is my conversation partner for it. So it'll be fun. I'm sure you'll be uh, reminiscing about all the romantic moments you and Scott have had, all the letters he's written you. Oh my gosh. He's written several really great cards uh, that I treasure and appreciate. And one very good letter that he wrote for my um, wedding shower, actually, when he wasn't there. Um, that was probably his, he looked up um, in old English, how to say, I love you. <laughs> It was a classic moment. Anyways, I'm getting off topic, but yes, there's lots to look forward to. And thank you everybody for listening in and keeping up. And thank you so much, Goody, for joining me. I just loved our conversation. I had a great time. And um, remember to please uh, follow the YouTube channel or the podcast on the service of your choice. Um, If you're enjoying this series, there's a lot more good stuff coming up. I've been planning the fall and I'm excited about it. And um, you can also follow me on Instagram at Old Books with Grace um, with underscores between the letters. And and Goody, thank you again. Oh, thanks for having it's, me. Great. You had so many wonderful things to share. And um, and until next time, friends. <laughs>